What did a group of Canadian citizens come up with after their thorough analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic? What was some of the more moving testimony heard by the commissioners to the inquiry? Is another pandemic going to have a similar impact on people's lives and on the policies of governments around the world? How will the new pandemic treaty be authorized in May in combination with changes to the international health regulations work to undermine our liberties and the health of our citizens? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we will be looking behind us at the consequences of the great COVID-19 pandemic and looking ahead at the second round of pandemic diseases as the mainstream media is beginning to increasingly formulate and as Bill Gates himself predicted way back in 2020. In our first half hour, we will look at the findings from the recent released final report from the National Citizens Inquiry, Canada's response to COVID-19. And we'll, we will talk to one of the authors of that report. In our second half hour, we will speak to filmmaker and journalist James Corbett about what to make of signs a new pandemic may be on the way and also to look at the latest draft of the pandemic agreement which could potentially affect the freedom of our national and individual health. On this week's broadcast, Pandemic 2 and the New Pandemic Treaty, Part 1, Hold the Line. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 1st, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The land and waters generously available to settlers came at the cost of Indigenous peoples, unfair promises and treaties, and the doctrine of discovery. Those descendants who have inherited this land must make awareness of responsibilities to reverse the crimes of colonialism and genocide in the past and make efforts to pay reparations and restore trust and respect to their partners. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The recent horrific events in Dublin left many in shock as a stabbing incident developed into an anti-immigration rally, which in turn developed into a riot as a tram, buses and Garda cars were set on fire. In the early afternoon, a man stabbed three children and a care assistant. He was stopped by a 43-year-old Deliveroo driver who intervened and hit him with his helmet. Then, quote, after the stabbing incident, rumors spread that the alleged perpetrator was an illegal North African immigrant, quote, fresh off the boat, unquote, 
along with false rumors that the children had died. Agitators fostered anti-immigrant sentiment online, urging people to assemble at the crime scene and protest, unquote. That comes from the article, The Dublin Riots, The Aftermath, by Kevin O'Cronin, posted November 29th. So by postponing the decision to, quote, admit or not, unquote, Kiev, Stoltenberg is simply saying that accession will never happen. For any analyst, the impossibility of this access has always seemed obvious. Ukraine is a NATO proxy, so it cannot be a member. The alliance mobilizes Ukraine against Russia precisely because it is not a member, as this frees the bloc from the obligation of intervening in favor of the regime. Ukrainian membership would prevent Kiev from fulfilling its role in NATO's war plans, which is why the promise of membership was always a mere bluff. That comes from the article, NATO Further Postpones Ukraine's Membership, by Lucas Leros de Almeida, posted November 13th, originally published on Infobricks. The net of dependency and control is being increasingly tightened around Australia, be it in terms of Washington's access to rare commodities, nickel, cobalt, lithium, the proposed and ultimately fatuous nuclear-propelled submarine fleet, and the broader militarization and garrisoning of the country by U.S. military personnel and assets. The latter includes the stationing of such nuclear-capable assets as B-52 bombers in the Northern Territory. The next notch on the belt of U.S. control has been affirmed by new proposals that will effectively make technological access to the Australian defense industry by AUKUS partners, the United States and the United Kingdom, an even easier affair than it already is. But in so doing, the intention is to restrict the supply of military and dual-use good technology from Australia to other foreign entities while privileging the concerns of the U.S. and U.K. In short, control is set to be wrested from Australia. That comes from the article, Sovereignty Surrendered, Subordinating Australia's Defense Industry, by Dr. Benoit Campmark, posted November 30th. When New START expires in 2026, Russia is positioning itself to pursue its current nuclear modernization programs free of any treaty constraints. This will complicate the nuclear modernization efforts of both the U.S. and U.K., whose follow-on capabilities, being developed at a cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, will be inferior to the systems Russia is in the process of deploying. Russia will not entertain any negotiating process which seeks to nullify its strategic advantage, especially so long as the U.S. and its Western allies embrace policies which paint Russia as a strategic enemy and seek the strategic defeat of Russia. If there is to be any hope for a revival of nuclear arms control between the U.S. and Russia, it will not be through a vehicle which sustains the legacy of the Cold War. Instead, a new strategic relationship will have to emerge 
based upon modern realities where the U.S. either must spend huge amounts of money to reach nuclear parity with Russia or negotiate from a position of strategic inferiority. That comes from the article, The End of U.S. Nuclear Superiority, Scott Ritter, by Scott Ritter, posted November 30th, originally published on Consortium News. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On the morning of November 28th, the much-awaited National Citizens' Inquiry, Canada's response to COVID-19, released their final report online. The document was 643 pages long. It incorporated testimonies from over 300 citizens in eight cities across Canada. Four commissioners were at the helm and investigated hundreds of hours and, and looked at what witnesses and experts told them. Learning how Canadians were affected by the policies of governments and organizations to address COVID-19, and then they put forward recommendations as to remediating the health and other crises that were impacted by past approaches. The National Citizens' Inquiry, or NCI, claims to have been enacted by grassroots people, many of whom felt wronged in some way at some level by the COVID measures, put in place and lasting for a long time. Faced with governments focused on imposing the measures, supposedly for the benefit of the people, and media that seemed a little lopsided in the way it covered the news of the pandemic, they started to organize and eventually made headway in getting a space where experts in a variety of fields could supply their facts, data, and recommendations. A lot of suspicion, however, has been raised however, about certain people, especially of a conservative mindset, Preston Manning, for example, being involved in helping to bring this effort to fruition. The NCI, however, claims that no government money was supplied, no partisan loyalties were part of the investigation. It was all financed by citizens. In the interests of full transparency, I should also let you know that both myself and Professor Michelle Chosodovsky were participating in supplying testimonies to the four commissioners. For myself, I felt a need to speak about the COVID crisis to a wide audience at the same time, and I would hear about other people's experiences. Listeners can therefore come to their own conclusions about whether or not the commissioners can be truly, fully trusted, but I would emphasize that the vast majority of the people speaking at the hearings were doing so under oath, and as a community reporter, hearing these testimonies is pivotal in fully understanding the scope of the situation. So getting to the report, it follows an interim report which came out in September and principally focused on the regulatory approval process and the safety of the COVID vaccines. While this is probably the most evident concern, Surrounding the COVID treatment process, the concerns go far deeper. It raises concerns about lockdowns, social distancing, masking, 
the elimination of the right to gather in large numbers, the economic harms, the social harms, lost jobs, and so on. The report is available now online. You can get a copy by going to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca slash commissioners hyphen report. Listeners can look up the report for themselves and go through the list of recommendations to, as well as the transcripts from all the people showing up at the hearings. But just to get an idea of where the, U- the NCI is coming from, I will read a few paragraphs from the conclusion to the report, which encapsulates this analysis. In the early stages of the pandemic, there was a widespread sense of urgency and fear surrounding the unknown nature of the virus. Government public health experts and citizens were grappling with the need to balance public safety with individual freedoms. The severity of the situation, as described in government propaganda and daily state media broadcasts, led to a general willingness among the population to accept stringent measures as a necessary evil. During these early stages, the stated primary goal was to flatten the curve and prevent healthcare systems from collapsing under the strain of a sudden surge of COVID-19 cases. Based on the biased and inaccurate propaganda being presented to the public, the notion of lockdown seemed logical and justifiable to curb the rapid transmission of the virus. Moreover, because early effective treatments were suppressed in favor of new experimental genetic therapy vaccines, the need for non-pharmaceutical interventions appeared to be necessary. Testimony from experts confirmed that by late March of 2020, the government already knew the true nature of COVID-19. They knew that it primarily affected the elderly with serious comorbidities, and they knew it was not unusually deadly or virulent. However, governments persisted in their imposition of emergency measures, and as time went on, the long duration of lockdowns and their impact on daily life began to generate debate and dissent. Economies suffered severe contraction and losses. Businesses closed permanently and livelihoods were disrupted. The societal and psychological toll of prolonged lockdowns became increasingly apparent as people grappled with issues such as mental health, educational challenges, and social isolation. Governments undertook unprecedented levels of spending, and the impacts of all of this debt will impact generations of Canadians to come. Thousands of people lost their lives due to fear, loneliness, depression, the postponement or lack of medical care, or from adverse reactions to an experimental biologic injection. People who were so terrified by the government propaganda that they turned on each other, friends, families, and communities were torn apart. The government dehumanized large identifiable groups and in so doing encouraged a toxic and dangerous environment. And as a result, the incidence of suicide, violence, and despair increased to unprecedented levels. As the pandemic persisted, there were differences in the approach to lockdowns among various 
countries. Some nations adopted more targeted and localized measures, while others implemented broad and strict nationwide lockdowns. These varying approaches contributed to a diverse range of experiences and public perceptions. Ken Drysdale was the Commissioner Chairperson for the National Citizens' Inquiry. I tracked him down at an event in downtown Winnipeg and had an opportunity to interview him about the recent report and its possible impacts going forward. Yeah, a very great uh, report that was released this morning. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about, uh, you have this uh, report about the, the pa- pandemic that was, but there's a lot of suspicion that pandemic two is going to be coming. You know, Bill Gates was, talked about it way back in 2020. And uh, I, I'm wondering, does this report, could it constitute some sort of uh, anything that could have, uh, uh, could help with the uh, the next pandemic, you know, especially if that pandemic tends to be, you know, even more deadly than the, the, the past pandemic was? Well, there's a whole bunch of answers to that. The first an- part of that answer is that the report contains somewhere around 400 definite, definitive recommendations on what to do in all instances, not just about uh, medicine, but it has to do with schooling, it has to do with the social fabric, it has to do with churches, it has to do with the military, emergency planning. So we address all of those issues. Like I said, there's 400 different things. But the real, the real value, the two real values of the report. The first is it's an historical document and it has documented the sworn testimony of over 300 Canadians, experts, ordinary people like you and I. And they've told their stories, and it's recorded for posterity. It's been transcribed, it's been filmed, and it's archived now on the National Citizen Inquiry site. So that's one thing. The other thing, the other thing is, at least in my opinion, what my intent in having been one of the authors of that report is that there's an old quote by Admiral Yamamoto during World War II. He was the leader of the strike force, uh, a Japanese strike force. And what he said was, I'm afraid that what we have done, all we have done is awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with a terrible rage. And that's what I hope the report will do in Canadians, that will waken Canadians from their sleep and they wake up in a bad mood and they demand better. So those are the things that I see coming out of that report. It would be unrealistic to think that a government that perpetrated these crimes and ignored the subpoenas that were sent out by the National Citizens' Inquiry would all of a sudden start to implement them. But the real power for implementation isn't in the government. It's in the people. And it's in them actually exercising their right to vote and don't get fooled by the political party shell game. Well, there's... uh a lot of sense that uh, the next pandemic, because the, the people who are, I could call them the health enforcers, if you will, but uh, they're going to be doubling down, I, I would think, because it seems as if it's, this pandemic is not, not that, that whatever they were trying to accomplish with the first time, they're going to be doubling down and they're going to be incorporating more fear. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so do you, how, how could you... Uh, deal with that possibility that uh, they're, they're, they're going to be doubling down even more. Children, 
could potentially be affected. That wasn't the case with the last virus. So, I mean, that's an additional leverage that they have to, to crack down. So how does this, I mean, just enforcing, informing people with the, the points in your, your document, uh, is that going to be enough to uh, force the, the, the rising in level? Or, or is something else going to have to come along that would uh, help us to tolerate that uh, uh, you know, robust level of, uh, uh, you know, level of uh, effort that the, uh, the globalists or, or other entities that are uh, putting forward these uh, acti actions will have? Well, you know, the greatest inoculant against this is the truth. Once people are exposed to the truth, once they turn off the, the propagandists, you know, the CBC receives $1.5 billion of our tax dollars, and they don't, they don't perform the duty that they're intended to perform, and that duty was to inform Canadians and hold government to account. They never did that. So we talk about a new pandemic. The pandemic that we just went through had nothing to do with SARS-CoV-2, uh, what it had to do with was propaganda and terror. That was the true pandemic. Testimony from Denny, uh, Dr. Denny Rancourt, uh, he, he actually examined all-cause mortality around the world, through the United States. The last one he did was in Canada because Statistics Canada never released the information from 2021 until just in the last several months. But his research incredibly showed that the rates of infection, supposed rates of infection of COVID, adhered to political boundaries. In other words, there were countries in Europe next to other countries in Europe that weren't affected. And there were states in the United States next door to another state that had a huge outbreak and there wasn't any in the first state. He found that most of the deaths in the United States or a lot of the deaths in the United States occurred in the southern states when the, the healthcare system refused them antibiotics because they have a great deal of, of um, lung infections in that part of the country. And when they withheld those treatments from all of a sudden these people were dying and it was called COVID-19. In my opinion, there was no pandemic. The numbers uh, bear that out. So the next pandemic isn't another uh, monkey pox or whatever else they want to call it. The real pandemic is the pandemic of fear and terror. And the only inoculation for that is for folks to really take responsibility, turn the television off, and look elsewhere. Um, there was an, an you, you mentioned uh, one of the, uh, the, the many people who showed up. Uh, I, I'd like to ask, first of all, of the many people who did show up, about how many uh, chose not to, whether because of their fear, you know, economic powers or, or, or some other thing that would be leveled against them. I mean, just give us a ballpark of how many uh, actually said thanks, but no thanks. But I'd also like you to, to point to the, uh, the figure known as uh, James Corbett, because he uh, talked about the, uh, the, the pandemic, uh, not quite a treaty, because it was not, but it was, it's coming down the pike in May of 2024, I believe, and the, the changes in the international health regulations. Uh, is there anything in your report that would direct us in such a way as to prevent that from happening and, and how we would put it forward uh, within Canada? 
Oh, a- absolutely. First, we didn't deal with uh, the um, so-called pandemic treaty, which is being negotiated with the WHO right now, because we didn't receive testimony on that. So what the National Citizens Inquiry did was we relied on the testimony of over 300 witnesses. I think there were about 156 or 160 of those were expert witnesses. And we used that as a basis for um, uh, preparing the report, doing our analysis. So the WHO so-called pandemic treaty wasn't part of that. Now, with your question with regard to the witnesses, as some of your listeners might know, it was an open uh, process. We invited uh, uh, Canadians from across the country to apply. We had over 900 lay witnesses apply. And we had, uh, I think it, I don't remember the number, but we had a total of 306 witnesses, but 150 or 160 were uh, expert witnesses. So there were a lot of people who have applied. We only did eight cities and, th- and three days in each city. We had 24 days of testimony, so we just didn't have enough time to do them all. That, may, that process may continue into the future. Uh, there is some discussions on that right now. With regard to the part of your question where you said people, did they, how afraid were they? Well, we had, a, we had a lot of, I don't know if it was a lot, but we had a number of witnesses who were destined to testify in the morning, and they didn't come. I remember I talked to uh, Sean Buckley about it this morning, and when we were holding the hearings in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, that morning, the first day, when we all got into the room and sat down, all of the witnesses had dropped out. And we had other witnesses that were on standby, and, and so we didn't know who was going to be testifying that morning because so many people dropped out. And they dropped out, out of th- fear and terror that their employers were going to fire them or their companies were going to lose their contract or their kids would get kicked out of school. So do I understand that? Absolutely. But that's the level of fear and the penetration that the government influence has in our society, right from the top to the bottom. Well, so now that the report has been released, uh, does that mean after the last uh, nine, ten months uh, that your job is over, that you can (laughs) sit back and uh, relax now? Or, I mean, apart from interviews from people like me, uh, do you have any, or are you finished now or you got uh, more to go still? There's a lot more to go. Um, I could tell you from a personal basis that having the report come out is a huge relief. Not for reasons that you might think. It's not a huge relief because the work is over. But carrying the burden for six months or more of all of those Canadians, those brave Canadians that came forward and they risked their jobs, and, and, you know, talking, I spoke to Sheila Lewis, a Canadian hero, and carrying the burden of their trust. They trusted us that we would present their stories to the country and we would present it in a responsible and unbiased way. And I have to say from my own personal experience, which each day that went by, I was carrying that burden knowing that they were waiting and they were trusting us. And, you know, when you start off on this, you know, the, 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 um, the main part of the report is almost 700 pages, and then the transcripts are another 5,000 or so pages. It's really difficult to do that in as short a period of time as we did. When I look at some of the other commissions that the, 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 the federal government has, has undertaken, 
first off, none of those commissioners write their, their report. They have editors and writers that write it for them. But I can assure the people of Canada that the four commissioners wrote that report from top to bottom. We were not influenced by anyone except for the witnesses who put their trust in us. So am I relieved? I am relieved for that reason, but there's a lot more work to come. One last question. Of all eight cities that you've gone to, what was your favorite moment? What, what really uh, moved you uh, beyond uh, you know, simply coming to a, a new truth? What, what, what moved you the most? You know, two stories. I can't say one. I'll say two. The first was Sheila Lewis. In my opinion, she was murdered. The, the legal system failed her. The medical system, in my opinion, my personal opinion, criminal were criminal in what they did, and they executed that woman. And when I listened to her and she was crying in the testimony, and we asked her, what do you want? And she says, I just want to live. So she absolutely knew that by standing up for her principles, it was going to cost her her life. The other story that really shook me was a story, it was, I believe the testimony was in Saskatoon. A lady told the story of how her mother went to the local uh, pharmacy and to get her COVID shot. And she stood in a line for I don't know how long, and there was a line of I don't know how many people. And as she advanced towards the front of the line, people came in behind her. Well, she sat down and got her shot, and she dropped dead on the spot, dead on the floor. And nobody, not a single person, got out of that line who were waiting to get their shot. And that shook me to my core. It really did. Ken Drysdale, thank you so much for your time. And uh... <laughs> It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. James Corbett of the Corbett Report has done research into the pandemic controversy and has also investigated the emergence of a new pandemic agreement being put together at the WHO, negotiated behind closed doors, and is concerned that in combination with the changes to the international health regulations may posit concerns that actions taken supposedly in the interests of public health are supplanting basic democratic principles. Before I start into the interview I conducted with him recently surrounding the October draft of this new agreement, I wanted to first play an excerpt from the conversation we conducted earlier this year. How, how, how will this second pandemic be different mm. from the last in, in terms yeah. of effects and protocols? Excellent question. Well, I think that's obviously the question for our times because it has been my, I've maintained this since the beginning of this generated crisis that we've been living under for the past few years. This was not about a virus. This was about setting up the global infrastructure for, court, for responding to any declared public health threat um, at any time. And that is exactly what is taking place. So for people who don't know, please research it. Yes, at it is at, at this point, they are publicly stating and claiming that they are moving towards the ratification of a potential international pandemic health treaty, which they're not calling a treaty. 
and or the uh, the amendments to the international health regulations, which is an entire governing fabric that the World Health Organization uses to essentially oppose its will upon all World Health Organization member states, which is basically every nation state on the planet, um, at the next World Health Assembly in May of 2024. Now, of course, that could be a feint or a dupe. They may extend that deadline. They may spring it early. The international health regulations could be uh, the amendments could be adopted at any time, essentially, um, that they choose to do so. It may be two separate processes. They may merge these processes. It's deliberately left very confusing, and it's hidden behind layers of gobbledygook. They're calling it the uh, proposed uh, uh, agreement uh, on international health concern, blah, blah, blah. There's an intergovernmental negotiating body that's running this process. It's all happening behind closed doors. I have talked about this quite a, quite in quite de a lot of detail recently in my work because I think it is important because they are setting up the infrastructure that will govern the response to whatever declared threat, public health threat comes in the future. Now that public health threat very well could be some sort of biological agent, biological weapon, uh, a release of some sort of biological agent, the likes of which Porton Down and Fort Dietrich and others have been working on for many years. It could be a completely generated health scare um, that is not an actual public health concern, but they could pretend that it is one. And part of the amendments to the international health regulations and others is essentially to, um, to uh, expand the powers of the World Health Organization to essentially declare anything, even a potential risk to public health can be declared as this type of public health emergency of international concern that can then basically spring into action the World Health Organization and whatever powers it gives itself under its new proposed treaty and or uh, amendments. So that we're facing some very serious concerns. Um, at the very, very best, I think we are facing the possibility, the probability of the hardwiring into global health, infra public health infrastructure, this multi multi-billion, perhaps multi-trillion dollar, ultimately boondoggle of biosecurity and 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 uh, big pharma manufacturers and others directly benefiting from this. But at very worst, we are facing the possibility of rele widespread release of some actual biological agent in order to uh, essentially justify this, this infrastructure that's being put in place. And you raise the specter, for example, of Bill Gates, who, as people may or may not know, was writing about oh yes, you know, this pandemic, we're treating it this way, but the next one, and he was actually calling it pandemic two, as in pandemic II, like World War II, we're going to have to fight like our our parents' generation fought World War II. And he, uh, some very creepy rhetoric, but beyond the rhetoric, of course, people may or may not know, um, uh, he wrote a book, which I reviewed on my uh, on my podcast about how to fight the next pandemic in which he was talking about the types of things that could be embedded in some sort of pandemic treaty, like a global pandemic firefighter response team that could spring into action, be activated by the World Health Organization and spring into action and go to what, whatever place that any sort of public health concern was developing and, well, do what they will, inject people, uh, quarantine people, whatever they need to do to, uh, or whatever they declare they need to do in order to counteract the health crisis. So that's the type of pro threat that we are facing right now. And I think this does it's definitely tie, it, it ties into that story of David Kelly. And now here's the interview I recorded earlier this week with James Corbett. According to a new information uh, in the mainstream media press, the pandemic of the last four years may be making a comeback. 
In China, Associated Press reports a, a surge in respiratory illnesses across China has drawn the attention of the World Health Organization. Uh, it's caused by the flu and other known pathogens and, and not by a novel virus. Uh, recent clusters of respiratory infections are caused by an overlap of common viruses such as the influenza virus, rhinoviruses, RSV, and adenovirus, as well as uh, bacteria from uh, you know, microsplasma pneumoniae. And China's health ministry is calling on local authorities to open more fever clinics and promote vaccinations among children and elderly people as China grapples with a wave of respiratory illnesses. On the Global Research News Hour, we've explored the understanding there, there's a lot more going on with the pandemic than an emergency illness in the moment that needs to be dealt with. It was pronounced well before levels of illness could be that severe. The RT-PCR tests helped artificially create the high levels of illness and so on. And we're not satisfied that a second pandemic certainly can't arise again. In fact, uh, at this time, the concern is around children falling victim. James Corbett is monitoring these developments. He's a filmmaker and a producer of the Corbett Report. Uh, he, for some time, years ago, he was a colleague at uh, Global Research making videos for GRTV, and uh, he's dived deep into related subjects uh, mainstream journalists won't touch. Uh, an award-winning investigative journalist, uh, he's lectured on geopolitics at the University of Groningen's um, Studium General and developed presentations on open source journalism at the French, French Institute for Research in uh, Computer Science and Automation's IOSSA conference at TEDx Groningen and at Rinsumeikan University in Tokyo. So I and our listeners want to welcome you again uh, to the show, James. Uh, it's a pleasure having you back on. Thank you for having me back on to talk about this. This, as you know, is an incredibly important subject and as important as it's been to our lives for the past three to four years, it is probably likely to be even more important in coming years if things keep trending in the direction they're going. Well, in our last interview on the David Kelly affair, uh, we, we finished the, uh, the, the hour talking about the, the pandemic and the, the new developments around changing international rules with regard to how the the world will respond to, to the next pandemic. So as we see in the press, there have been uh, a series of articles uh, coming out in the mainstream press mentioning uh, a new pandemic uh, is definitely coming. And, and now we're seeing upsetting news from China that's prompted masking and distancing in China. Again, it looks like a respiratory illness uh, not from a, a novel virus, but from, you know, clusters of overlapping common viruses. And um, this could be a replay of four years ago, only this time the health can, healthcare enforcers, if I could put it that way, will be prepared, you know, for the, the few people who dissent from the standard advice of the WHO. But the new pandemic sort of treaty comes out in May of 2024, or it's supposed to. I'm wondering, James, what you think about this. Is this the next step in the plans to establish a, 
the power grab of the WHO? Is this something you've been expecting or is it just a seasonal flu being embellished? It really could be both, actually. And in fact, I will add to this mix that as we are recording, the latest headlines are UK detects its first human case of swine flu strain. So apparently there is even more fuel for this fire that's developing, even as we're talking right now. And I think people can probably intuit that regardless of what you think about what happened over the past few years, the uh, the groundwork has been laid, at least in the psyche and the consciousness of the public, to understand and expect that there will be massive response to any future pandemic threats. And as much as people may poo-poo the craziness of the past few years and the masking and the lockdowns, it is interesting to speculate what might happen if there was a truly, as opposed to uh, not quite uh, a, a, a nothing virus, I won't say it that way, but at least a very, very small event um, in terms of mortality, if there was a truly bubonic plague level taking out one quarter of the population uh, type of illness going around the way people would be clamoring for the very rules and restrictions that they were protesting against in the previous few years. And you have to uh, uh, at least imagine that if there were people in positions of power and authority who seek to profit in every sense, monetarily and just through power grab from that type of fear, that at the very least, they would be playing into that, if not actively seeking to create such strains. But um, at any rate, we don't even have to go there. And the way that I understand this entire topic, because I have been researching very carefully over the past 16 years now, the topic of false flag terrorism, I do see the parallels between the war on terror and the new biosecurity state that's coming into view with the pandemic preparedness that the United Nations, for example, was talking about in, uh, after their latest General Assembly and having a political call um, that we must have some sort of new agreement from the World Health Organization to help us prepare for this. And oh, lo and they are working on just such an agreement that they won't really let us see until it has passed presumably at next year's World Health Assembly in Geneva in May of 2024. And I think the way to understand this is that throughout, for example, the 1990s, it wasn't just that Osama bin Laden and the war on terror suddenly appeared all overnight. There was a gradual buildup of events that took place in an escalating cycle. And in the American domestic response uh, uh, context, we could see, for example, Waco and then the OKC bombing, preparing the public for these psychologically jarring, very large scale terror events. And on the international scale, the African embassy bombings, the USS Cole, introducing the sort of the idea to the public. Um, we saw, for example, in the wake of the OKC bombing, the introduction of the crime omnibus bill that um, Joe Biden now likes to brag that he essentially, he, he really kind of wrote the Patriot Act because that was just an extension of the, the crime omnibus bill that they tried to pass in the wake of the OKC bombing. Um, all of this infrastructure was being laid beforehand. And interestingly enough, it wasn't even simply 9-11 that caused the actual pulling of the trigger on the entire Homeland Security state and the actual institution of the Patriot Act it was the anthrax attacks, which were literally directly targeting Congress at the exact time that they were deliberating on the Patriot Act and whatever provisions might be slipped into there. And then the anthrax attacks happened, caused this massive panic, the shutdown of Congress. They decided to, uh, to pass the Patriot Act right away in an overnight session, panic emergency. And now there's a new law of the land, an entirely new paradigm of governance. We are looking at a 
potentially very similar trajectory. We saw the buildup of events from the swine flu of 2009, Zika, uh, the Ebola scare of 2014, etc., escalating throughout the 2010s into the COVID scare of the past few years. And now we are on the cusp of potentially another scare, which might cause the actual political impetus and even the public to get on board with the idea of the World Health Organization swooping in to save the day with their brand new pandemic agreement. Mm. Yeah, I, I can't help but uh, notice that uh, the, uh, the another th aspect of it that was that, that was being planned for was the the fact that uh, the climate change would somehow be motivating this or, or you know, resulting in the transfer of more of these uh, uh, the virus from animals to humans or something like that. And it, it, this is it, this is right now during the uh, the, the latest COP28 you know, uh, exactly, exactly right. And in fact, that's an incredibly important thing to underline because one of the pieces that is being embedded, uh, or at least from what we've seen, is being embedded in the new pandemic agreement that they're working on behind closed doors is this concept of one health, in which it will not simply be about human health. It's not just that the World Health Organization is going to steward over the entirety of the human population and uh, let's trust our, our health to their uh, their assessment. No, it's one health, as in it's not just human health, it's animal health, climate, uh, environment, health is all related. And thus, essentially, the entire world and all of its resources come under the jurisdiction of the World Health Organization. So it is incredibly important. And one of the things that they stress is zoonotic transfer from animal species to human species. And this is happening because we're encroaching on protected areas and because of climate change, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So now all of this starts to become essentially as has been pointed out, for example, by the Club of Rome in their 1991 publication on the first global revolution, where they said that they were looking for a way to unite humanity behind the concept of uh, humanity itself being the enemy and global warming fit the bill because it is a human, presumably, at least according to the theory, it is a human generated problem and it requires this global governmental solution. And that's exactly what we seem to be facing with this. Yeah, well, maybe you could bring us up to speed on on the the changes that the the WHO has planned. I mean, for those who uh, are maybe not up to the date, I mean, there's the creation of the document uh, aimed at uh, the prevention of preparedness for and the response to the future pandemic. Uh, they tabled a recent draft in October. Okay, you you say it's all been discussed behind closed doors; nobody can see. Um, could you just highlight a few of the concerns, just a few of the concerns you are raising about this uh, not quite a treaty document that in combination with changes to the international health regulations uh, could see the sovereignty of states and individuals health threatened even more than they already are? There are certainly aspects of power grab, money grab to this um, from the big pharmaceutical companies that could stand to benefit from the types of changes that are coming into view. There is also the setting up of genomic um, data transfers of not just pandemic pathogens of international concern, but potential um, pathogenic um, pr problems, which essentially opens up a Pandora's box of um, countries potentially being somehow, at, at least through this treaty, legally obligated to to start sharing various genetic data in 
uh, in ways that are not very well explained, at least in the draft documents that we've seen so far. They also raise, um, for the first time in a legal document, the concept of infodemic, which they give some sort of cursory definition to. But essentially, the question, uh, the uh, question on the table is uh, what to do in the light of future pandemic or emergency situations when people are spreading false information on the internet. And we know what that looks like because, well, for me myself, I had my YouTube channel of nearly 600,000 subscribers that I'd built up over 14 years taken out at the flip of a switch because it was, of course, in contravention of World Health Organization uh, mandates and remits or whatever gobbledygook um, uh, garbage language that YouTube used to censor masses of people back during the previous scare. We can only imagine they are now looking at actually uh, instituting some teeth in that so that the World Health Organization itself can really come in and censor people. Um, There are many, many other concerns, but the most concerning to me is the fact that they are no longer calling it a uh, an an agreement or instrument or other legal body, blah, 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 whatever they were, the gobbledygook mouthful of a phrase they were using to describe this document before. They're calling it specifically a pandemic agreement, but very specifically in Article 21 of the draft that they released on October 31st, boo, Halloween, um, they have specifically a reference to the creation of a conference of the parties, which for people who do not know, the COP, COP, is used in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's used in the Biological uh, Convent Treaty, uh, Warfare Treaty, et cetera, et cetera. All of these various UN branches and agreements have their COP, their Conference of the Parties, which is essentially set up like a type of government, which will not just operate and and institute a single set of laws, it will continue to operate and meet year after year after year to try to develop and continue um, adding teeth to whatever agreement that they sign in May 2024. So even if the pandemic agreement that will undoubtedly get rubber stamped in May 2024, unless we make uh, that politically unfeasible, even if that agreement was, was fine on its face and didn't actually instituted any of this, the conference of the parties that will meet every year thereafter could add all of these things to the agreement. And guess what? There is exactly zero political accountability or insight into this process whatsoever in the exact same way that Canadians, for example, have exactly zero say over the conference of the parties at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. You don't get to elect whatever representatives the Canadian government decides to send over there, and you have absolutely no say on whatever they decide in those agreements, but then they start to become the rule of the law, uh, the law of the land in Canada. Uh, Well, how did that happen? It's because essentially this is a great sovereignty takeover that is happening right under our eyes. And they are attempting to do the exact same thing with the World Health Organization. Wow. Um, I know that, uh, yeah, it sounds like you've got like sort of a a mini state within the state that's basically saying, okay, whatever you guys decide, this is what the rules are going to be, at least in health. Um, I I know that there's an article uh, in WION uh, reports that uh, Kate Bang- Bingham, the uh, the chairperson of the UK's uh, Disease X, uh, could turn out to be uh, uh, the UK's vaccine task force from May to December 2020 said she believed that Disease X could turn out to be considerably more perilous than COVID-19. Um, and you also mentioned in your last in our last interview that uh, Bill Gates said that COVID-19 was a pandemic one 
and we are facing pandemic two, like World War Two. You know, um, it, it will be more demanding than that everyone get vaccinated. I imagine. Do you see the the health enforcers uh, clamping down on vaccines at a time when when fewer and fewer people are are bothering to go based on what the data they are seeing? I think that what the past few years has exposed is the fact that we should not be listening um, unquestioningly to what we are told is the science while excluding all of those medical professionals, including very degreed, very credentialed people who have had entire careers in the medical field who have never once been questioned, but now are are toxic and cannot be interviewed or mentioned in mainstream media because they dared to question the pronouncements of the past, past few years. And we find out, oh, wait, they were right. There are serious health concerns with what is uh, masquerading as a vaccine, which is actually this mRNA injection, etc. Um, there's a lot of people who have woken up to that reality. The only way I think that they can continue to push forward with this agenda is to double down. And the only way to really double down is to create or generate or play up or whatever it is, some sense of not just a renewed crisis, but an actually escalating crisis. This is going to be worse than what we saw with that COVID thing. You thought that was bad, wait till you see this. And unfortunately, we are talking about the people who have been working in that murky world of biological weapons that we were talking about in our previous conversation with David Kelly, who presumably would know a thing or two about what disease X might look like. And for the people in the audience who don't know about this, there has been talk for years now about uh, wargaming and planning. There have been disease uh, exercises run by these various uh, organizations and foundations, etc., on clade X and other such things, which is an imaginary potential future pandemic of some sort of respiratory virus or something along those lines that will spread around the world. They have been wargaming out that situation for many years now. And one would expect that, well, when you start at the very least, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, at least in this situation, whatever develops, whether natural or some sort of man-made thing, whether released on purpose or accidentally escaping from some of one of these classified bio biological containment facilities or whatever the case may be, be, at any rate, they will try to hammer that problem down because they see it as the nail. And the hammer that they have is all of this infrastructure that they are putting into place right now for the biosecurity state, which will in, uh, almost inevitably involve some sort of mandatory vaccinations, vaccinations, once again, talking about this new um, I guess we can't call it experimental anymore because the human population is being experimented on these mRNA injections and other such novel ideas for really rearranging people and their um, their natural biological processes, playing with the code of life, the software of life, as even Moderna and other art, um, companies have called it. And who is who is spearheading all of this and being the PR frontman for it? Of course, it's Bill Gates, the man who took over the software of the uh, the computer world 30 years ago, is now going to try to transform the software of life itself. Mm. Yeah, well, that leads me to my final question for you and I, I hope you'll uh, you'll address it uh, the the idea of how we actually prepare for pandemic two and and the who legislation coming down the pike 
Unfortunately, this is uh, one of those problems which there is no half-hearted solution. Um, there may be a number of stopgap political measures that can be made that might lessen the impact of this. But as we have seen, no matter what sort of legal instruments or documents or pieces of paper people might have, like the, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that they think protects their fundamental rights, those can all and will all be discarded in the sense in the uh, in the perceived sense of a crisis, whether real or imaginary. And so what really truly needs to happen is a fundamental transformation of not the political system itself, but our understanding of our individual human sovereignty, our medical freedom. We have the right to make our decisions for our own bodies. And that decision may be, I, I perceive there is a real risk. I'm going to mask up. I'm going to take the mRNA. Whatever that decision is, it is again up to and incumbent on each individual to make that decision for themselves. And no presumed self-described health authority has the right to mandate that on anyone. Until that tr fundamental transformation of human consciousness takes place, I don't think there will be some sort of solution from within the political system as it is uh, being woven around us. Because as I said, for example, you have zero input into the UNFCC process. You will have zero input into this World Health Organization process that is going on. So I would say the first order of um, political sorts of things that we can do to start to generate this consciousness in the in the public um, sphere is to tr uh, create and put momentum behind an effort to start by withdrawing Canada and every other nation from the World Health Organization itself, just as a start, just to say, no, our health sovereignty as a nation does not rely on whatever the World Health Organization is saying. That that organization may exist and it may have its, its recommendations and we may follow those recommendations. Maybe we won't, but we will not sign our country's sovereignty over to this organization and put ourselves beholden to them. That would be the first step. The second step, of course, would be to withdraw from the United Nations and all of these other in, in, in uh, global government nascent bodies that uh, that breach national sovereignty. And then people can start working on taking the, the next level down from, well, we don't need this international government. Why do we need the national government to dictate to uh, all of the provinces, for example, so we could bring it down to the provincial level. And from the provincial level, eventually, maybe we can get to actual individual sovereignty. But until we start reversing exactly going in the opposite direction of this trend towards global consolidation of power and moving it down towards the individual until that that momentum starts to shift i don't think we'll have a real solution here fantastic james corbett thanks a lot for uh sharing your knowledge and understanding with our listeners we really appreciate it thank you for having me on we've been speaking with james corbett a filmmaker and producer of the corbett report that is our show. We will discuss more about the topic of the next pandemic and the NCI on next week's show. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.